you would please take your Bibles out and open them up to 1 Timothy. There we resume our study this morning and taking a break last week and looking at the psalm in conjunction with our Lord's Day or communion. This morning we make our way back to this pastoral epistle. And before we took a break from there, what we had been looking at specifically, we began looking at Paul's uh, instructions for the church regarding how widows were handled. Uh, and, and we saw there that Paul was just kind of beginning to set the parameters of what is truly a widow or who should be caring for the widows in the midst of the church. And so it's been laying the groundwork, and so now he's getting into, he's going to expand on that a little bit more for us and talk about the character of widows. Now this is going to, this actually flows really well in Paul's Uh, this pastoral epistle by Paul, because Paul has been talking about character almost the entire time. If you pay close attention, Paul's focus in this book, as I've told you, and I'll say it again, an overarching theme in the pastoral epistles is faithfulness. And who is the faithful person? The faithful person is the man or woman of character. That's who's going to be faithful, is the person who has the character to indeed be faithful. And so this morning, we're continuing on with looking at the widows, and as Paul was given instruction for the church with how it was to be handled. And so if you would, follow with me now, starting in 1 Timothy chapter 5, picking back up with this in verse 9. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible, inerrant word. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, then has devoted herself to every good work, but refused to enroll younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So is the reading of God's Word. May He add His blessing. Please now pray with me. Father, thank You for this instruction, so specific, so detailed. And thank you for the applications that we see therein. And I pray that this word would really minister to us this morning, that it would draw us in more deeply into relationship with you as we are reminded of what things matter in the kingdom of God. Oh, God, revive us, transform us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. If I were to mention two Old Testament characters to you who happen to be named Ruth and Boaz, I'm going to guess you know who that is. And it's interesting to me, most people who, are, who profess Christ know exactly who Ruth and Boaz are and have probably even read the book of Ruth many times, heard it preached or taught or done Bible studies or Sunday school lessons on it. Now, we could even make an argument that those names are so common, they are almost as common as David or, or Moses or many of the other Old Testament saints that we just, we know when we hear their names, we know who Abraham is. We know who Moses is. We know what David did. We know who Saul is. And when we say Ruth and Boaz, people, oh, yes, Ruth and Boaz, Ruth the faithful, Boaz the faithful, especially during the time of the judges. 
Now, we remember so many of the saints for their power and their miracles, right? We know that, that Moses stood before the Red Sea and it parted before him by the, through the power of God. We know that David was a great warrior, a fighter. We know that Abraham had these visions of God and God made a covenant with Abraham and the people after him. So we remember all these people for these miracles and displays of power. That's not why we remember Ruth and Boaz. Not even close. Ruth and Boaz didn't slay armies. They didn't part seas. They weren't up in the thick of battle. They weren't slaying the enemy of God. No, that is not why we remember them. We remember them precisely because of their character. Now think about that. In the annals of biblical history, these are two people who did nothing great by man's standards, but great in the eyes of God because each chose a pathway of faithfulness when men and women were doing what seemed right in their own eyes. They did what was pleasing to the Lord. And so thus, we have a book in the Bible dedicated specifically to them, and not to mention she's in the lineage of David. They both are. So that's an important aspect too. But however, when you read, you don't find that out until the very end. As you're reading through the book of Ruth, you're just reading a treatise, a, a narrative on character, on what it means to be godly. And so that is why we remember them. So when we think about this, we think about the idea of character. I'm, I'm going to say something that is probably horribly obvious. Character matters. And at the, in the pulpit of the chapel, that is not a controversial statement for me to make. Character matters. But as uncontroversial as the statement might be, we must ask ourselves, does it matter enough? Because sometimes as we, we, we're looking at the larger church, we're looking at the church more broadly, and even sometimes ourselves, we have to ask the question, do people really value character as they ought? Do I personally value character as I ought? Because it becomes very clear in how we live our lives and the choices that we make, that is going to be a great uh, summation of where our character is. And so we have to think about this. As the culture seeps into Christianity, it's given the idea, it's, culture gives the idea that a little immorality won't hurt anybody. Or a little immorality is my personal choice and it's none of your business. Or a little immorality is, in, I'm not murdering somebody, and, it's, and people will reason that way. That's wrong. Immorality is immorality, whether it's big or small. Breaking God's law, it's breaking God's law, whether it's a big law or a small law. And I would even argue there are no small laws in God's economy. Everything is important. And I'm not preaching at you this morning. I'm preaching to all of us because it has seeped in. It's easy to reason this way. I don't do the big sins, so my little sins don't really matter. Sin affects the body, whether it's big or small. My little sins are just as bad as your big sins in the eyes of God. The Bible speaks against this very idea. So thinking of people that we remember, do you remember Esau? Remember Saul? Do you remember Balaam? Those are three big names from the Old Testament that we also remember. Why do we remember them? Because their character was bad, and it led them to do wicked things. And so when you're looking at the Old Testament, if you're going to take the 
the, the more telescopic view. You're going to focus out and just look at it from a distance. One of the things that you can very easily pick up is character matters to God. In fact, David, who wasn't perfect but was a man after God's own heart, God saw in David some aspect of character. When we think about David, did he do wicked things? Absolutely. Some of the worst things. But when David is confronted with truth, what happens to David? Repentance. Repentance. A man who sees the truth of God and says, I need to realign my character with that. And that's what God is looking for in his people. All those men, Esau, Saul, and Balaam, were all rejected because their character compelled them to live in an unpleasing way to God. So character matters, which is why character matters take up so much space in the Bible. When Paul's instructing Timothy about widows, Paul is teaching Timothy how to display the character of Christ in their midst. And by instructing widows on their character, Paul is teaching widows how to display the character of Christ. And so the overarching theme, if you go back and look at Proverbs, what, what so many of the Proverbs are about a man or woman's character to build in godliness. So I'm not just using character as simple morality. I'm not saying it's just good to be moral people. It is good to be moral people, but character is, in biblical terms, this type of character that we want to seek is a God-likeness, a character that says, I want to imitate Christ. So with those thoughts in mind, there's one idea for, I want for us to see this morning, and it's this, that Christian character really is worthy of honor. Christian character is worthy of honor. So when we think about Christian character... It's the art of living well, right? So it's, it's how, do we, how do we live best? How do we live well in a world that is by default just against so many of the precepts that we hold true? So it's all about living well in the midst of a world that is broken and lost. And so when you look at this pastoral epistle, not only are elders and deacons supposed to be people of high character, the whole body is. The widows, the, the, and, and I, want you to, I want you to keep in mind here that widow in this culture, when Paul's writing, is a very, very vulnerable population, one of the most vulnerable populations. And Paul is telling, reminding widows that even in your destitution, your character matters. What you do matters. How you live matters. What you believe matters. And so you can't use your destitution as a prop to get by with nonsense. Even you, who are destitute and vulnerable and who need help, must live honoring Christ. So that we understand that there's not a double principle here. Elders are to have high character, so are widows. And it's important that we grasp that. So as Paul is laying these ideas out to Timothy, he's talking all about helping widows, and he gives Timothy these qualifications for what the widow should possess in order for her to be helped by the church. Now, we live in a very different time where being, a wi- being widowed is not the death sentence that it once was. And so an application that we can use here is how do we help the vulnerable people in our midst, those who are struggling, those who are crushed, those who are in a hard way and who genuinely need help, and so this is a good application moment for us to say, how, how do we identify the vulnerable in our midst so that we can appropriately help them? Well, Paul starts here specifically with widows. He starts in verse 9, let a widow be enrolled 
if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband. I'll stop right there. We're going to keep going. But I just want to address this, let a widow be enrolled. There is some debate as to what that means. Is Paul, was there an official list in the church by this time? Most likely not. There would become one. Eventually, on down the line, they would have an official widow's list. What Paul is doing is just reminding Timothy that the widows are a special group of ladies who present unique challenges. And so he's giving him the qualifications for, if you're going to have a woman in, come into this group, here's the things you need to be mindful of. Is she not less than six, or she's over 60 years of age and the husband of one wife, having a good reputation for good works, if she's brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. So start here. Why 60 years old? Well, because in this culture, that was old. That was really old. And I'm not trying to insult anybody who's 60 or older here. Uh, this is Paul's culture, not ours. It was a different time. At that point, at 60, Paul is saying, you're not going to get remarried. And it's probable, at this point, Many of your relatives are dead. And so he's using an age where she is vulnerable and she really doesn't have much chance to do anything else. She's at a stage in life where she is going to be dependent on somebody. That's why the age of 60 is chosen. And literally, it says the wife of one husband or a one-man woman, quite literally a one-man woman. We've already come in contact with this phrase in both elders and deacons. What Paul is driving at here, he's not giving us teaching on marriage. What he's trying to say is that she is faithful to her husband, that she has lived a life of faithfulness to her husband before he passed away. The reason we know that widows could remarry is because in verse 14, he actually says, have younger widows remarry. So we understand here that one man, woman aspect is talking about, have you been a faithful wife to the man that you were married to? Or are you known as a faithful woman to your husband? That's Paul's point. So when we think about that, the overall focus, as I said in the pastoral epistles, is faithfulness. And when you think about that, what Paul is doing here, again, is no different than what he's done. Who are, who are elders? They're faithful men. Who are deacons? Faithful men and women. Who are these widows? They're faithful women. That's the whole point, that their lives exude faithfulness. And so we shouldn't be surprised, as Paul has given these qualifications, that the highest priority on his list is the character of these women, because it's been the top priority all throughout this letter. And so we as believers, again, take note that we are called to be people of high character, that means that we, are, we live our lives with integrity and honesty, understanding that that matters to God. So when, it, when in verse 10, having a reputation for good works and then ends it and has devoted herself to every good work and all that stuff sandwiched in the middle, that what, is, what Paul is getting at is that her labors for Jesus are visible that it's clear that this woman serves God and serves the church, that her heart is set on serving the Lord. And it's done in a, in a number of ways. If, if she has brought up children, how did that go? Has she, has she shown hospitality? Has she washed the feet of the saints? Has she cared for the afflicted? Has she devoted herself to every good work? You get the sense that, has she been a faithful, solid, exemplary Christian. That's what Paul is getting at. Has she lived her life well 
before others. And what we need to remember here is it's not about her laboring for everybody to notice. People just notice because she's faithful. Do you have people in your life that you know that they are faithful, solid, good Christian people, and they're not trying to flaunt it, you just, you just see it. You see it in them. You see it by the way they live. You see it by the way they handle themselves. You see it by the way they handle conflict. That's what Paul is driving at here. It's not as if she's saying, hey, look at me. Look how good I am. It's just you can't help but see it because she is a faithful laborer in the kingdom of God. Now, Brad, is it possible for someone to labor from from bad motives? It sure is. There are some people who do want to labor and who do want to point it out so that you can see it and think how great they are. That's bad. But good character motivates good service, right? So if we want to be faithful servants in the body of Christ, the primary motivation is going to be what's in our hearts, the character that we possess. But then Paul kind of makes an abrupt change. And this is, a, this is an express command. It's what I've, you've heard me say, imperative verb before. It's a verb of command or urgency. Refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, and notice not if, he doesn't say if, he says when, when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. So Paul commands this refusal to younger widows. When you look at it, it's clear what his primary concern is. Its primary concern is moral, i.e., a character issue. You can't get away from it here. Paul's primary concern is character. Now, let's break this down a little bit. So he says, But refuse to enroll younger women, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry. Understand passions here as desire for a husband, desire for the one flesh union. Desire. It's a sexual desire that Paul is talking about that is natural between married people. He's, uh, he's anticipating that younger women who still have some life left to go are going to be drawn away and desire marriage and desire that one flesh union that they've already experienced before. And so when He's saying that that is going to lead to immorality, but the question we've got to ask is, is what is he talking about? Because then he goes on to say, uh, they desire to marry, which seems fair enough, and so incur a condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. This is where we've got we've to break this down. So the desire to marry is not immoral, all right? So let's get that straight. He's not condemning marriage. He tells them in verse 14, remarry. Younger widows should, in fact, remarry. And here it seems like he's saying, but if they, if, they, if they choose to remarry, they're abandoning the faith and incurring judgment. Well, there are two schools of thought, or there may be more, but the two primary schools of thought here is what, here's how you would read this. Refuse to enroll younger widows when their passions draw them away from Christ that desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former pledge. Now, what Paul, if, if you hold to that theory, what Paul would be saying is, is that when you came into the church and you decided you're going to be enrolled in the widow, you made a pledge at that point not to get remarried. And so now that you're feeling this call and push and desire to remarry, you're breaking your former pledge that you made to us as an oath. That's one way to understand this. The second way to understand it is to let it read how it reads here in the ESV, abandon their former faith, and understand that in a culture, these women who were younger widows, who still were desirable, who could still get a husband, might be prone out of loneliness 
to go and, and find a pagan man and marry him and follow him into his religion. So choosing immorality and abandoning their faith and incurring judgment. You could actually bolster the second view by Paul actually saying in this paragraph that some have already strayed after Satan in verse 15. It is not clear which view this is. If you want to know which way I lean, I lean to the second. Just taking the verse as it stands, not trying to translate the word for faith as pledge, just letting it be faith. Because in a culture prevalent with paganism, it, is a, it was a primary concern that in women in that culture are going to follow the religion of their husband, whether that's Baal, whether that's Greek myth or whatever. So it seems best to me to let it stand as it is, don't translate faith as pledge, translate faith as faith, and understand that Paul is warning them about not letting their desires push them in a direction that would separate them from the Lord. And so when you read that, it, it's kind of jarring when you first read it, but there is, uh, it's, it's a complex idea. So whatever, whether it's the pledge, whether it's what I've said, what I think it is, it's grave, and it falls under judgment. And here we go again. They've abandoned their former faith, i.e., they have chose faithlessness, not faithfulness. That's Paul's point. But then he, he, he says, okay, when they've done that, so incur the judgment of God. They've abandoned their faith. Where does that lead them? That they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, not only idlers, but gossips, busybodies, saying what they should not. So idlers, laziness, gossip, slander, busybodies, when you see all that laid out, that is the very opposite of what Christ is. That is the very opposite of what it means to be faithful. That is the very opposite of what it means to be known for your character. At that point, you're known as divisive, a slander, a gossip, and someone who generally people want to avoid. And so Paul is reminding us truth matters because truth informs character and character informs actions. And so the way that we're going to live our lives is going to be informed by the truth. Faithfulness can't be if there is no truth. So we have to come all the way back to the root, which is truth. Now, Paul is dealing specifically with younger widows here, but there's an application here. Every person in this room has the potential to be an idler, to be a gossip, to be a slanderer, and to be a busybody. And in fact, in scriptures, when you see Paul talking about putting people out, notice false teachers correct them. People going astray, receive them. Don't disfellowship, reform. The divisive brother, put him out. The gossipy, slandering, busybody person, Paul says, put him out. Because he understands the detriment that that is to the body of Christ. And so what does that say to all of us? Let's watch our character closely. Let's watch it closely. Let's ask ourselves, where, are, where am I being faithful and where am I being faithless? Let's invite our friends that know and love us and that we trust to come and speak words of, of conviction when we need them, because character matters, and we need to be keeping a close watch on our character. So then Paul builds from this. So what is the remedy for them not incurring judgment and not abandoning their faith? So Paul says, so I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. So younger widows need remarriage. 
That's what Paul is saying. That's what will help them grow in character. And anybody who's married understands that marriage does make you make choices. Uh, lots of choices. And when in seasons where maturity is lacking, you make the wrong choices. But as you grow, and God willing, as you mature, we begin to understand that we are making choices that might not benefit me, but it benefits my spouse. It might not be my thing, but it is my spouse's thing, and I want to love and serve my spouse. And so Paul understands the, dy the dynamics of marriage and your character. You're forced to, to grow if your marriage is going to work. You have to. You have to grow. You have to sacrifice. You have to make changes. And so he's instructing these younger widows to remarry, that their character might build. Paul's logic is very simple here. If they're busy at home serving uh, their, their, their families, they're not going to have time to be the busybody that they could if they don't have any responsibility. So get them invested in a family, Timothy. If there's godly men and you have these young godly widows, pull, encourage a union there so that they can grow in the Lord and she can continue to blossom as she ought. But look at what he says here. He says to do this so that the adversary has no occasion for slander. So the question we have to ask here is, who is the adversary? Well, it seems most natural to me, since he uses the proper name Satan in the very next verse to understand the adversary as Satan. So that he's saying, develop your character so that Satan can't slander you. This raises another question, though. But we do know that Satan can accuse, so let's meet this out. So what is Paul driving out here? Well, if you are in Christ this morning, you are covered in the blood of Christ, you are robed in his righteousness, Satan has no slander. There's nothing Satan can say against you because now you are in Christ and Christ has you and you are righteous, right? So Satan can't slander you to God. Satan has no occasion to slander you. Satan does accuse, though, and Satan doesn't accuse us to to God, Satan accuses us to us. And so often his voice sounds a lot like our voice, and so often it sounds like the voice of reason. See, he can't slander us to Christ, though. When Paul talks about giving Satan no occasion to slander, he's saying if you live above reproach, you watch your life and doctrine closely, you give the enemy no occasion for real fodder to slander you. Can people lie and can Satan lie? Absolutely, and they will, and they do. But if we entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly, we don't have to worry about their lies. It's hard not to take it personally. I haven't mastered that yet, but I'm growing. But the beauty of it is, is when we're rooted in Christ, beloved, when we are rooted in Christ, Satan has nothing to say to us or to God. So, Receive Christ. The counsel to the younger women is good for us. Receive Christ. Imitate Christ. Be above reproach. And Satan has no case. But Paul says here, Paul says very clearly, for some have already strayed after Satan. Who? Well, it's the very ones who've rejected the counsel of Paul. Now, why is that important? Because we're coming back around to truth, and it matters. What is the ultimate, what is the end game when someone rejects the truth? They stray after Satan. And I want us to break this down for just a little bit, because when people abandon truth, it is never an all-at-once thing. It's, not, it's like a sinking ship. 
It happens bit by bit. They start abandoning things here and there. In fact, I'm not going to get too specific, but if you look at mainline denominations in Christendom, especially, well, around the world, and you're starting to see the decline of mainline denominations, do you know where much of it started? Do you know where so much of these mainline denominations, which some of them started happening in the early to mid-20th century, where it started? It started in compromising how we understand certain things in Scripture. It started in compromising very things, things that seem small, things that actually seemed progressive. Where do we, how do we understand women's role was a major one that began the decline. And then once you, once you crack that door a little bit, it's easier to crack it open a little bit further. Well, how do we understand human relationships? Surely love is the end-all be-all, and God is love. And so if somebody loves somebody, none of the rest of it matters. And then that door gets cracked open a little bit more until it gets open so far that whatever the culture says becomes gospel truth and gospel has to bend to culture. That's how it happens. It happens when little pebbles of truth get tossed and it begins to ripple effect. That ship just sinks and sinks and sinks and sinks until you get to present day and you've got denominations who are just godless and wicked and have embraced all manner of wicked things because truth did not stay firm in the beginning. That's exactly the import of the pastoral epistles. Why is Paul doing this? He's giving Timothy truth to be the anchor so that when the culture comes to blow uh, uh, the, the ship around, it's firm, it's held where it should be and doesn't drift. Mission drift happens when we abandon truth bit by bit. And as I said, that is almost always a process. No one ever just goes wholesale right out of the gate. They begin making compromises a long way out, and it's sad. It's sad because the remedy to that is so simple. Live, believe, preach, honor, and keep the truth. The truth. It may be hard. It may make some conversations uncomfortable. It may bring tension to relationships. But beloved of God, we must. Because if we don't, if we don't, we see what happens. It's clear. We don't need an object lesson. We've seen it again and again and again. You see it in, in, in biblical characters. You see it in your life's experience. You know it because we see it repeatedly. The problem is the same. It hasn't changed. The remedy is the same. It has not changed. I was, well, I won't go there yet. Paul says some have strayed after Satan because they refuse to follow good and godly counsel. And here's what I want to say, and I want to make sure you hear me say this, because this is important. Character doesn't save us. Having good character does not save you. Christ alone saves us. But good character is a great measure of someone's heart. We get a good feel for who someone is by the character they display. So character is not going to get us into heaven. Just being a good person, being a decent person, is not going to get a single solitary soul to heaven. But there won't be any soul in heaven who live their lives with awful character. And so we need to keep that balance because it's not about everything I do, although what we do is important. 
It's about the heart behind it. Why do I do what I do? And that is the measuring stick for everything else. We're so, we need to be careful who we pronounce and don't pronounce to be believers. We need to be very sober about that because the heart is deep. Paul rounds out this paragraph. He says, if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Now, it might seem a little peculiar. Why does he single out women here? Let a woman care for widows in her family. That's a fair question. Before we get there, I want to say this is almost identical, excuse me, to what he said in verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially as members of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Essentially, Paul is saying, if you have people in your family who need help, families should help them insofar as they can, right? Insofar as they can. But why does he say women here? Let, if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Why does he single out women? Well, you're talking about a culture that was very conservative regarding how men and women interacted. And so, even within families, Paul said, hey, to be above reproach, let the women take the lead in how they care for other women because women understand, and also it keeps, it keeps no kind of, there's, there's, there's nothing to talk about at that point. Now, here's what Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying that men cannot help out with widows. Men absolutely can. He's just identifying a principle of integrity that, hey, if a, a believing woman has widows in her family, let her take the lead in how she sees to care for them. So it's all about being above reproach. It's all about being faithful. Again, we come to this idea. But he says, he's very direct, let the church not be burdened. That's actually an imperative command. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. In essence, people who don't generally need the church shouldn't expect the church to help. That's what Paul is saying, because there are people who genuinely need the church to step in, and then there are people who just kind of maybe want their lives to be made a little easier, or maybe just want to feel a little bit more comfortable, and Paul's instruction to Timothy is say, God bless you. Go ask your family. Let them help you first. Now, there are situations where family cannot help, and at that point, it is appropriate for the church to step in, but this is a great, great reminder of we don't always have to expect the quote-unquote church to do the, the deal. We as church members can step in and be generous and faithful with people as we see fit. Because there are people who come to the church, even in present day, who come to the chapel who genuinely need help, and we want to be able to help them. And so Paul is telling Timothy, be generous, but be wise. Be, be generous, but be discerning. Be generous, but know it is who needs and who really can get help from somewhere else. So our posture should be generosity with wisdom. So let's call it a wise generosity. Our posture should be a wise generosity. Yes, our, our, our posture is to give, but we need to ask questions. We need to figure out, is this a real need? Is this, are we your last-ditch effort? And that's not being rude, that's actually following exactly what Scripture would have us do, to be faithful with the resources that we have. So when we're looking at this, 
we come to this final idea that character matters in living life in gospel community. So often, even we as Christians live with what I've called the Forrest Gump approach to morality. If you remember Forrest Gump, he says, Mama said a little white lie never hurt nobody. And it's easy for us to live that way. A little white lie never hurt anybody. And it feels like it doesn't, especially if that little white lie might save someone's feelings or if that little white lie might actually help this relationship to not be, uh, have an edge to it or if that little white lie might benefit you in some way and no one's ever going to know. Or maybe it's some other sort of sin. Christians live with that Forrest Gump approach. Humans in general tend to be squishy on character, especially, especially if someone is dynamic or has dynamic gifts. There's a lot of things we can look the other way at if someone is, has this dynamic personality or this dynamic gift. We tend to, that's because as a culture, we tend to celebrate success way more than we do faithfulness. Is it successful? I mean, when I go, when I go to any pastor's conference that I've ever been to, I'm inevitably going to be asked a couple of questions. So where do you pastor? Gainesville, Florida. How big is your church? 10,000. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Clearly. We, is they always want to know how many folks you got there. How, 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 many, how, many, how many seats are in the pew? And it, I've just grown to say, I don't ever say this because I don't want to make it awkward. I, but I would love to just one day say, you know what, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how big it is. We've got, I'm just thankful for the people that God has brought to the chapel. I heard Mark Dever say that when Joel and I were in Washington last September. Somebody was asking him about diversity in his church, and he just said, you know, I, I want to have a diverse church, but we're just thankful for the people God brings us. And I thought, amen, brother. We're just thankful for the people God brings us. That's because the world looks at success as higher than faithfulness. But we are called to a more excellent way, beloved. The Bible calls us to Christ-like faithfulness that boldly shows our allegiance to the Lord. If a man or woman is dynamic, great. God bless them and may God use it. But the question we have to ask is, in their, in their dynamicness, are they faithful? Are they faithful and dynamic? Because if they're faithful and dynamic, that is a powerful combination. And I've seen it. I've seen faithful, dynamic people. I'll tell you, one of the most humble, faithful, dynamic men from church history is Charles Spurgeon. It is no wonder that the Metropolitan Tabernacle, the Lord grew it to the numbers that he did because Spurgeon was faithful to the truth. He was a dynamic preacher, obviously, but he never lost sight of what his primary job was, was to preach the Word of God, and that's it. And the Lord used him mightily. So, are they dynamic? Great. Are they faithful? Are they humble? Is the goal to lay lives down for Christ? Character matters, and character matters are very important in the Bible and should be very important to us. Not just young widows, not just to older widows, but to every soul in this room. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this word this morning. It's power. It's so rich and helpful. And thank you for your faithfulness in laying out these small details for us as we consider what life in the body of Christ really must look like. God, it must look like faithfulness in action. It must look like the image of Christ 
or the imitation of Christ, rather, in action. And so, Father, help us. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be men and women who value faithfulness more than success, who value integrity more than being thought of in the public square as some sort of cultural mover and shaker. Let us be people who exude the image of Christ to others. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.